Thank you very much, Lindsay, um, and my thanks to the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland and Dr. Dr. Catherine Cox for the invite uh, to present this paper. I'd also like to thank, uh, express my appreciation, the Irish Research Council and also the UCD School of History and Archives. Uh, without the support of the Government of Ireland Postgraduate Scholarship and the Albert Lovett Scholarship, this wouldn't exist. Uh, so I'm very appreciative there. Um, but on to the business at hand. Um, to begin, it's probably worth noting the origins of this paper. Uh, I was seeking to research the Church of Ireland's approach during the 1950s and 1960s to medicine, medical ethics and healthcare. As an institution delivering healthcare to predominantly Church of Ireland patients with a predominant Church of Ireland ethos and a predominantly Church of Ireland staff, the Adelaide enjoyed the position as the lead institution in Church of Ireland healthcare. It was the only hospital envisaged as, in some way, belonging to the church at the central level. The strong sense of familiarity between the church and the hospital leaves an imprint in the archival records that reveals the culture and priorities of the Church of Ireland, of Church of Ireland healthcare rather, as far as they can be deduced. The Church of Ireland Gazette was not hesitant in acknowledging the special relationship between the church and the hospital, and this sense of ownership does not pertain to any other hospital that I could identify. The Adelaide's also unusual amongst voluntary hospitals in that it was especially well preserved from external influence. It was not a local authority hospital, and a local authority representative only appeared on the board in 1953 when it agreed to receive some limited local authority funds. It refused money from the hospital trust fund until the mid-1950s. And finally, it was a matter of course that the Adelaide Hospital, being an essentially religious and Protestant institution, was free from the direct involvement of the Catholic Church. Therefore, of the dominant players in Irish healthcare, other than the Department of Health, so things like the IMA, the Hospital Trust Fund, the Catholic Church and local authorities, only the IMA could make itself felt from within the corridors of the Adelaide Hospital until the mid-1950s. So uh, it therefore is an ideal case study for an assessment of the Church of Ireland's approach to healthcare and therefore Irish Protestantism generally as the Church of Ireland tended to set the tone and other Protestant smaller churches would follow. By looking at the hospital, I was able to deduce the issues that determine the health policies of the Church of Ireland and its medical community. This paper is therefore focused upon the religious dimension of the Adelaide Hospital. It is not a comprehensive history of the hospital's contribution to Irish medicine or medical training, but rather an assessment of how religion directed, moulded or restricted that contribution. The Adelaide Hospital was founded in 1839 for the treatment of poor Protestants in Ireland and its school of nursing was added in 1858. In November 1920, a royal charter was granted, and this charter remains in place until October 1980, when the Adelaide Hospital Charter Amendment Order was passed in the Oireachtas when Charles Hawley was Minister for Health. So it is this charter, therefore, that underpins the structures and organisation of the Adelaide Hospital and the society which governed it from 1950 to 1972, being the period I'm looking at. Um, it quickly became an anachronism for it maintained references to our United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland when it only operated for one year of its 60-year existence within the United Kingdom. However, this was a largely inconsequential clause. More significant principles peppered its text. Clause 5E listed among the objects for which the Adelaide Society was established and incorporated 
and re just read this off the screen, to maintain the fundamental principle upon which the Adelaide Hospital was established, Fidelice, that the society should be and remain an essentially religious and Protestant institution, and that no person shall at any time be eligible to hold appointment in connection therewith, or to vote or take part in any of its proceedings, or, except in cases of emergency, be permitted access to the hospital to communicate religious instruction, or for any purpose of religion whatever, who is not a member of or does not profess the doctrine of the Protestant Reformed Church. Further to the religious restrictions on membership of the Adelaide Society, this is the governing body, a series of financial hurdles had to be cleared. Clause 8 detailed the levels of membership, £50 um, bought you life governorship, £5 one year's governorship, and for £100 you could nominate someone else to be life governor. You could also purchase membership at £10 for life or £1 for a year. This provided a graded scale of membership based on financial means, which was about far more than hospital governance. The, minin the minutes of the management committee revealed that members and governors of the Adelaide Society had the power to recommend patients to the hospital or dispenser, and therefore this was akin to a prototypal private health insurance in that it guaranteed access to the hospital for maybe you and your loved ones kind of a setup. Clergy were plugged into this scheme of hospital governance and access via Clause 10 of the Charter, which read, every incumbent or minister of a Protestant church or chapel who shall permit a charity sermon to be preached for the benefit of the society shall, for the year during which sermon is preached, be entitled to all the privileges of a subscriber of, for the amount collected. This clause was never commented upon in the plentiful number of appeals published in journals like the Church of Ireland Gazette, seeking more generous contributions from families. For instance, in 1951, the editor appealed to families to set aside two and a half pence per week, so that on Dublin Hospital Sunday, they could lay 10 shillings on the collection plate to help the Adelaide Hospital stay in business and remain free from the moral taint of sweepstake money, polluted as it was by the vice of gambling. In a 1954 editorial, the editor was still pressing for more funds, quote, to change the collection from a token tribute to a worthy contribution. Can you multiply your offering by five, 10 or 20? Of course you can, by a few days self-discipline. On neither occasion did the editor explain that this served as a transfer of wealth to the clergy person, who would benefit from membership of the society to the tune of the amount of money raised by his congregation a potentially sizable and valuable insurance policy. It is in this light that certain appeals should be read, such as when the editor pleaded in the same 1954 editorial, should we admit that the day of voluntary hospitals is past? It is a nice, easy way of following the line of least resistance. Let everything be done by the state and paid for by rates and taxes. He then concluded for his reader, it is our privilege and duty to keep the Adelaide Hospital on a voluntary basis. This argument was advanced under the threat of deathbed conversions in Catholic hospitals. But is it possible that a congregationally subsidized scheme akin to voluntary health insurance played at least a subconscious role in leading some clergy to, to favor the voluntary Adelaide Hospital over state-funded healthcare? I suspect so. How did religious restrictions play out in the management of the hospital? Given that the fundamental principle of the society 
was to be and remain an essentially religious and Protestant institution, the fundamental principle was open to a pan-Protestant interpretation. Patients outside the reformed tradition of Protestantism in the hospital were permitted pastoral visits, but under stricter terms than those within the camp of reformed Protestants. Four named elders of the Religious Society of Friends or Quakers were permitted entry from June 1952 to members of their church, and in November of the same year, four visiting cards were issued to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul to visit Catholic patients, though this was reduced to three cards shortly later. A request by a Jewish women's group for visiting rights was turned down repeatedly, but the rabbi was permitted entry to Jewish patients at any time. While non-denominationalism was limited outside Reformed Protestantism, it was not measured out equally within it either. There were Presbyterian and Methodist chaplains to the Adelaide Hospital, but the chaplain to the Adelaide Hospital was a Church of Ireland clergyman, Richard Dice, who served 45 years from 1937 to 1982. Similarly, while the Board of Management had a cross-section of Protestants among its membership, all the clergy on it were Church of Ireland, and so all clerical components of the hospital's management structure were Church of Ireland. The first entry on the list of Board of Management members was His Grace the Lord Archbishop of Dublin, who was the only ex officio member, of course being the Church of Ireland Archbishop. When a Board of Management was constituted in 1960, Church of Ireland clergy and bishops were given five of the 26 seats. By comparison, the medical board of the hospital were afforded only three representatives on the Board of Management. So five Church of Ireland clergy to three medics. So while it patronised the patients and pastors of other denominations and religions by granting them variable levels of access to its corridors, in management terms, if spiritual guardians were required, they were to be drawn from the Church of Ireland. Just as Clause 5 of the Charter laid down restrictions on who could sit in the hospital's management committees, it mandated that the hospital's recruitment process must act as a religious filter also. When a new system of interns to replace resident doctors was introduced for the training of doctors in the Medical School of Trinity College Dublin, the Board of Management fretted about the implications for the hospital. The Adelaide was one of a number of training hospitals for Trinity, and now trainee doctors would have to be paid. The minutes of the Board of Management record that, as all students in future become interns and as no Protestant may hold an appointment under the Charter, the question of the religion of future students was discussed. The solution was simple and suggested by Dr. David M. Mitchell, author of A History of the Adelaide Society, A Peculiar Place. And A Peculiar Place is it's a very valuable in instructing what's going on uh, behind the scenes in many instances, but it is a history written by a member of staff of the hospital and commissioned by the Adelaide Hospital Society, so it has all the limitations of, of a text like that. He was of the opinion, and this is, this is from the minutes, that as only one third of those enrolling as students would become interns of the hospital, it should not be difficult to ensure that, quote, sufficient was of the right persuasion. At a subsequent meeting, legal opinion was sought on just how binding the strictures of the Charter were, and if they were binding, up to what rank could they be considered to be binding. The response of counsel is unfortunately not recorded. No flexibility was shown in the Adelaide School of Nursing, and the rules for it and the Victoria Hospital in Cork, with which it was affiliated, was that all candidates must be Protestants and willing to attend divine service in the hospital. 
This was not a mere formality and the Divine Service Attendance Book was maintained and placed before the Chairman of the Managing Committee for signing at Managing Committee meetings. In 1987, the year on which A Peculiar Place was published, Mitchell was still able to assert that no Roman Catholic candidate has been enrolled in the school. There was little sign that the Board of Management was a reluctant inhabitant of the Charter's parameters. When a Miss Daly sought to do a refresher course in theatre work, the Board of Management agreed, provided that Miss Daly was a Protestant, paid a nominal fee and was covered by insurance. There was no legal or chartered reason for a religious condition to be attached before ceding to Daly's request. She wasn't going to be a member of staff, she wasn't going to be governor, anything like that. Um, so therefore the religious restrictions of the charter were being reinforced by the religious, religiously restrictive culture of the management's decision making. This culture was punctuated somewhat in the 1960s when a reforming matron, Deirdre de Berg, was appointed. She's a distant relation of Chris de Berg. Uh, try to look it up. Uh, de Berg sought to do away with outdated and demeaning practices. For example, less than a year into the job, she successfully pushed a motion over the line at a managing committee meeting, with two dissensions when votes were unusual, condemning the appearance of nurses outside the hospital in uniform for the purposes of collecting money. This would be these would be the charity sermons preached in the services where the clergy person was benefiting, and you would get a bunch of very young nurses tending to be, you know, the trainee nurses would turn up with their collection boxes and begin to collect money. Um, and obviously, Deirdre de Berg thought that this was not acceptable. Um, this, this vote, she got this vote over the line, and no more would Adelaide nurses collect in uniform. Still with less than a year since her appointment, de Berg pushed for a more radical departure from past practice in April 1963, when she made the case for the appointment of a Catholic theatre sister, as no suitably qualified Protestant sister could be found. The matter was again pushed to a vote, and the appointment of Sister Donoghue was approved on a show of hands. In December 1965, another Catholic joined the staff at the hospital when only one suitable application was made for the post of medical registrar, and it was deemed urgent and essential that the post should be filled. However, de Berg resigned in 1967, and it does seem that this kind of reforming zeal departed with her. Upon her departure, the post of matron was seemingly too sensitive for such ecumenical overtures. The Board of Management received six applications for the post in 1967 and these were shortlisted to three. Two of the shortlisted candidates received unsatisfactory confidential reports, while the final candidate was Catholic. This appeared to be as damning as the unsatisfactory reports, for it was decided to continue the search. Finally, Sister Marjorie Douglas was chosen in 1969 to take up the post of matron, having worked for the hospital for 25 years. Without the patronage of de Berg, Sister Donahue's position seems that it might have been relegated to second-class status, as suggested by an episode involving a nursing scholarship in 1970. A competition for a nursing scholarship to spend four weeks in a London hospital and valued at £75 was advertised by the Florence Nightingale Committee in the press and by letter to hospitals. The letter sent to the Adelaide never made it into the public notice board for staff, but Donahue replied to the notice she had seen in the press and won the competition for the scholarship. Upon learning of Donahue's success, de Berg's successor as matron, that's Marjorie Douglas, instructed her to withdraw as she had selected a different sister as the official applicant from the hospital. 
This became the subject of a dispute and was quickly escalated up the ladder of hospital management with the Irish Nurses Organisation supporting Donoghue. The management committee was unmoved by Donoghue's situation and indifferent to the squandering of human capital inherent in, this, in the decision to keep a talented employer in her, in her place. The issue ended up before the Housing and Finance Committee for a firm decision. I only managed to actually find the right, the, the right minute book, which wasn't on the catalogue in the archives, but I found it yesterday. Uh, so I did actually finally find out what happened here. So eventually they decided they'd received numerous correspondence from the Nightingale Committee and also the Irish Nursing Board, and they did feel that because the scholarship had been advertised in the post, they couldn't actually refuse the scholarship to Sister Donoghue, but they did say that it would be made clear to her of their disapproval. Now, the reasoning shifted also during this, so it started off that the anger was over she had submitted an application when the official applicant was someone else. By the time this was reaching a resolution, it had moved to she had applied and she hadn't cleared this matron and this would upset the time schedule of surgeries and things. So. It's not clear whether this is procedural or whether, whether one can blind oneself that this is the only Catholic nurse in the hospital and whether that's actually playing the part. Um, I certainly can't prove it beyond reasonable doubt, but I think on the balance of probabilities, it's certainly worth putting a pin in and seeing if maybe more can be learned about it. These episodes, so the refusal to consider Catholic candidates for the post of matron and the, and the refusal to allow Catholic staff members represent the hospital and develop themselves professionally, should cast a cautionary light on one of Mitchell's assertions. Having told his readers that no Catholic had passed through the Adelaide Nursing School in its entire history, Mitchell reassured his readers that there was no religious discrimination in the employment of trained nurses. Sisters and staff nurses who are Catholic are welcome and integrate easily into the nursing team. What little evidence can be glimpsed from an analysis of the minute books of the hospital cast some doubt on this claim. These are the relig religious restrictions as applied to those managing the hospital, working in the hospital and visiting its patients. How are religious restrictions applied to admission policies? The charter indicated that the aim of the hospital was the treatment of the Protestant poor. Other religions and denominations were only partially welcome and Clause 20 dictated that the profession of the doctrines of the Protestant Reformed Church shall, save in the cases of emergency, be necessary to entitle a patient to admission as an indoor patient to the hospital. But no such religious profession shall be necessary in order to obtain relief at the dispensary attached to the hospital or in the accident wards of the institution. The emergency loophole of this clause was in constant use during the period of review. Though how liberal that use was is subjective and lies in the eye of the beholder. In commenting upon the proposed changes in the Charter in the 1970s, which were only agreed in 1980, Mitchell commented that, for the first time in over half a century, appointments were to be made on merit alone, and patients admitted solely on their medical necessity. This was merely making formal and legal what had long been the practice of the hospital. This assertion jars with two de decisions I could find in the, in the managing committee books. In 1955, the Board of Management agreed that Nigel Kinnear, a member of the board and a surgeon at the hospital, should circulate the relevant section of the charter to members of staff, quote, in view of the large number of non-Protestant inpatients. Five years later, at a meeting of the Managing Committee, the admissions policy was discussed and it was agreed in principle that the names of non-Protestant patients should not be put in the waiting lists. 
It is evident that there was some level of tension in how liberally or conservatively the emergency loophole was to be exercised. And that while Catholics and other non-Protestants were certainly treated in the hospital, it was not on the sole basis of medical necessity that they were admitted. It was an issue that the managing bodies of the hospital monitored and on at least two occasions clamped down upon. An objective measure can be ascertained of how many non-Protestant patients were treated in the Adelaide Hospital in the minutes of the Board of Management. For lists of non-Protestant patients were read out at its weekly meetings. Between 1950 and 1972, there are full annual accounts for five full years, and it was possible, therefore, to compile the following table. Just the key uh, column is the first one of average weekly admissions. These figures evidence that non-Protestants were treated in the Adelaide and also in growing numbers over time. Weekly figures could vary during a single year, but there is a remarkable degree of stability in the mean weekly figure between consecutive years, suggesting that some form of organised regulation was applied in the use of the emergency loophole clause. It was permissible to use it frequently, but only to a certain extent, it seems. This was the shape of the Adelaide Hospital and the Adelaide Society, as structured by their charter. At every level, management, recruitment, admissions, filters were applied to keep non-Protestants at bay. A certain level of non-Protestant patient admission, admissions was permissible, but not too much. Whenever the, that balance was upset beyond the comfort zone of the managing bodies, they would reissue circulars instructing the staff of the hospital about the Charter's restrictions. A certain level of recruitment of non-Catholics was also permissible, but only when it was absolutely impossible to recruit a suitably qualified Protestant. And even then, there's the hanging question mark over whether they had full equality within. On the subject of management, there was little room for manoeuvre. Munificence only extended to other Protestant denominations. A Methodist or Presbyterian doctor or layperson could ornament the board of management or the managing committee. But when it came to ecclesial representation, only the Church of Ireland's clergy were up to the job. This was the list of priorities that dictated the Adelaide's official position to the waves of reform that would lap at its unyielding shores during the period. Without too much of a fight, it would countenance relaxing its admissions policies. Grudgingly, it would recruit non-Protestants if it really had to. Management, however, was of a different order. At all costs, the Adelaide was to remain a Protestant management structure and no threat to this stipulation was to be tolerated. The restrictive policies of the Adelaide Hospital and its society were not unknown to Irish policymakers and caused a considerable degree of tension. In June 1950, invitations were issued to various dignitaries for the Gala American Concert, a fundraising event for the Adelaide at the Theatre Royal in Dublin. The following note is recorded in the archives of the Office of the President. The Secretary to the Government informed me today that invitations had been sent to the Taoiseach and his wife, to members of the Government and to a number of Army officers, for the Gala American Concert to be held in the Theatre Royal on the 29th of July next, in aid of the Adelaide Hospital. Having regard to the bitter anti-Catholic reputation of the hospital, the members of the Government had one and all declined the invitation, and the Army officers had done likewise, presumably on instructions. The Secretary to the Government suggested to an official in the Office of the President to mention the development to the President, Sean T. O'Kelly. O'Kelly had form in condemning restrictive policies in hospitals, and in 1930, in a debate on the legislation which paved the way for the Irish hospital sweepstakes, this is the lottery system underpinned by statute that 
diverted funds to the hospitals. He expressed his view that hospitals availing of the resulting funds should have to discard their policies of religious discrimination. He argued these barriers are a relic of, a by of bygone days and they should be a relic of bygone days. We accordingly think that if such hospitals ask to be allowed to use this privilege, i.e. sweepstake funds, they ought to march with the times. The presidential O'Kelly, however, was mellower than his former self, who had been one of the few knights of Columbanus and de Valera's cabinet and a proponent of Catholic morality and Irish medical ethics and foreign policy. When his official approached O'Kelly on the subject, informing him that the Adelaide has the reputation at the moment of being the most anti-Catholic hospital in the whole of Dublin, O'Kelly responded that he was aware of the former reputation of the hospital. There was indeed a time when a Catholic priest would not be allowed inside the hospital, but things had changed now to the extent that Catholics are admitted and priests are permitted to see them and administer the sacraments. The matter was not allowed to rest there, and the subject moved up the ladder, ladder of protocol when the Taoiseach raised it with O'Kelly the following day. O'Kelly remained firm, his official recording how. The Taoiseach had mentioned something of the sort during his visit to the Aris yesterday. The President had informed him, however, that he already accepted the invitation and promised to go, and that he would honour that promise. O'Kelly's official then instructed the Secretary to the Government of O'Kelly's decision, and the matter was allowed to rest. And that is O'Kelly and Mrs. O'Kelly at the concert. O'Kelly continued to attend Adelaide functions when invited, and this was met with a continued sense of uneasiness amongst officials. Adelaide hospital events attracted an unusually critical eye from state officials. At a Rubenstein concert in 1954, the order in which the dignitaries were listed was perceived by officials as a slight against the president. They had listed the um, British ambassador ahead of the Irish president. <laughs> a series of notes were passed between the offices of the president, the chief of protocol in the Department of External Affairs, and the Irish Embassy in London to see what conventions held there, in which it was ruled that the matter is one of tact and good taste rather than of a definitive rule. The Adelaide Hospital people would seem to have erred in a lack of the former rather than by a specific breach of the latter. And for what this is worth, the, I don't know if it's specific to the Church of Ireland or it's broadly speaking, but they do tend, when a dignitary is attending, they do tend to get a very detailed list of protocol to this day. So if the Lord Mayor is turning up at an event, they will get a piece of paper that says the Lord's Mayor seat, the Lord Mayor's seat must be six inches in front of anyone else's, unless the President of Ireland is there, in which the case, their seat must be six inches in front of that. And when these events are usually in cathedrals with fixed pews, the church simply ignores this. But the, uh, the holders of these offices are always fine. I don't know what the officials sending out these letters think of it. It was decided that no formal protest should be made to the organisers of the concert, but that in future the president's attendance at such events should be organised more closely with the secretary to the president so the protocol was followed more strictly. The state's real power to effect change in the management of the hospital would not lie in attendance or non-attendance at its functions or in furious memoranda on the finer points of protocol. Cash was king, and only as the Adelaide's financial position slid from bad to worse could the state exact the concessions favoured by Irish policymakers and politicians, which were largely uninterested in the management of the hospital, but demanded that admission and recruitment policies blind themselves to people's denominational or religious persuasion. The Adelaide could choose to ignore such demands when it was independent of state supports and sweepstake money, but as it grew needy, it softened its stance in various matters. 
It is also worth noting that the state had some reason to desire the inclusion of the Adelaide within an organised system of, the hos of hospital care in Ireland. It was a teaching hospital. It had developed a number of specialities, including neurology, orthopaedics and psychotherapy. And it was also the first Irish hospital to introduce an intensive care unit in October 1965, which led to an additional speciality in anaesthetics. It also, something I've dwelt, it also had a, you know, a, a very good experience in gynaecology, which is really important in the whole area of whether Protestant ethics held here as opposed to Catholic ethics. But what I can't find during this period, it becomes an issue certainly later in the 80s and 90s, they do highlight this fact. But during this period, there's no mention of the peculiar um, strength that that might have in the context of Ireland at that time. And the lack of that um, maybe is interesting. I'll return to it later in the paper, but i just flag it now. The financial position of the Adelaide Hospital was precarious from early in the 20th century. Financial worries were not unique to the Adelaide, but the Adelaide was unusual amongst voluntary hospitals in refusing the obvious solution, accepting funds from the Irish hospital sweepstakes through the Hospital Trust Fund. A number of hospitals had resisted accepting sweepstakes money initially in 1931 and refused to participate in the scheme. However, within a few years, only the Adelaide and its affiliate, the Victoria Hospital in Cork, these were the only ones still outside. The shortfall was offset, offset through a number of revenue streams. There were various annual collections, the Matron's Pound Day, the Shilling Fund, and the Dublin Hospital Sunday Fund amongst them. Corporate donations were also important and varied. They came from a variety of sources like Imperial Tobacco, the Swastika Laundry, Guinness and & Company, and the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, and also the Orange Order. Uh, the ITGWU's uh, contributions were for specific branches. The annual Midsummer Fair brought a dash of colour and eccentricity to the streets of Dublin. Continental cafes were one of its milder imports, and on more daring occasions, tropical fish displays, Siamese cat competitions, and dog shows were introduced to the official residence of Dublin's Lord Mayor. The Siamese cat competition, I think, might still go on from time to time. On occasion, its organisers' enthusiasm could prove unsettling to the sense of moral rectitude, so carefully nurtured by the hospital's management, such as when it was embarrassingly revealed that raffles and lotteries had been held at the Midsummer Fair to raise funds for the Adelaide. An ambitious fundraising campaign in the 1950s was witness to a number of rather garish events, including Viennese masked balls and the Queen Charlotte's birthday ball, featuring 330 girls making their debut. However, there were also cultural dividends. This campaign brought global musical talent to Dublin's theatres, including Ukrainian-born classical pianist Beno Musevich, Polish-born classical pianists Jan Smetherlin and Arthur Rubinstein, and Spanish-born classical guitarist Andrzej Segovia. The picture along the top is the only image I have of the actual concerts. That's uh, Moisevich, and there was much drama behind that particular concert because he had had a heart attack the day before. And so the colour writers made great mileage out of the fact that there was a doctor from the Adelaide and a backup pianist in the wing should he collapse midway through the performance. <laughs> Why was it so important to resist the temptation of the sweep? A moral rejection of the vice of gambling played its role, but it was only part of the picture. There was an alternative and underlying fear. The editor of the Church of Ireland Gazette dismissed the easy solution to the financial woes of the Adelaide and appealed to the Hospital Trust's fund on the following grounds. But with money will come the interference of those who administer it. In this Christian land, a hospital can also be a happy hunting ground for the saving of souls. A hospital can be a proselytising agency, for a sick person may be too weak or too polite to say that he has come for physical treatment and not for spiritual experimentation. 
The Protestants of Dublin should, if they are worth their salt, preserve at least one hospital where the sick may be protected from religious controversy. So it was not gambling per se which the Adelaide Hospital was resisting, but interference from the predominantly Catholic world outside. Despite all these separate streams of revenue, the Adelaide was never in sight of getting a handle on its spiralling debt. In the three years up to May 1953, the Adelaide had annual deficits averaging £15,000, in addition to a £40,000 debt on recent capital expenditure. This was hardly surprising, as debts run up by other hospitals were also considerable. However, they were bridged by grants from the Hospital Trust Fund, and by way of comparing the Meath Hospital with 170 beds to the Adelaide's 163, so very similar, it would run up debts almost of 60,000 a year during this period. In 1952, the Board of Management of the Adelaide decided to send a delegation to the Minister for Health, Fianna Fáil's James Ryan, to seek financial support from the state. A series of meetings followed with the Minister and Secretary to the Department of Health, and three options were submitted to the Adelaide's delegation for consideration. That they agreed to amendment of the Adelaide's Charter so that patients of religions other than Protestants might be accepted as inpatients. That the Adelaide agreed to enter Dublin Corporation's scheme for necessitous patients, and that the Department of Health could circularise confidentially all the local authorities urging them to send all Protestant patients to the Adelaide Hospital. The Managing Committee took up the Dublin Corporation scheme but rejected the other two and it agreed that someone could sit on its board from Dublin Corporation as long as that person be Protestant and Morris E. Dockrell was called up to do so. With the government unwilling to make a grant from the Exchequer unless the religious restrictions were lifted and the management of the hospital unwilling to countenance such a compromise, Ryan once again pointed them in the direction of the Hospital Trust Fund. He explained that the money now being made available from the Exchequer to the Fund was in respect of capital works and he saw no reason why the hospital should not benefit from this provision. The financial situation was sufficiently grave that the representatives of the Adelaide returned to the Board of Management and recommended that they accept the money, but that they do so discreetly for as long as the money was associated with the, the, the Hospital Trust Fund, some of their members would object. The importance of conducting this deal in the shadows is well captured in a memo in the Department of the Teachers Files, in which it was explained that the members of the Hospital Trust Fund have considered the method of transferring monies to the hospital should the Minister decide to make a grant available, and it is understood that they feel that it would be possible to devise a method which would avoid the appearance of the money being portion of the Hospital Trust Fund. The members of the Hospital Trust Board did a good job, and subsequent historians as well as contemporary sources were kept in the dark. A sum of about £40,000 was advanced to the Adelaide by means which are less than clear. It is difficult to pin the exact date of this transfer or even the precise amount, but it came to a head in October 1955 when the Adelaide sought additional funds and the Department of Health refused to grant them until the money previously granted was spent. It seems most likely that the money was lodged in an account and then used to leverage additional funds by Jesuitical line of reasoning were deemed to be free of the taint of sweepstake money. The hospital managed to stagger on until 1961, when it required a fresh injection of capital and it sought to enter the Hospital Trust Fund in the standard manner. During these years, the management of the Adelaide, the Minister for Health and the Hospital Trust Board had success successfully kept their dealings secret. What appears to be an initial draft of a statement to explain the 1961 decision to join sweepstakes in the normal way did suggest the board thinks the time has now come to make a clear statement of the assistance which the government has given in the past. However, the statement it outlined was less than clear. The document stated that the hospital was in receipt of trust funds through a, through a variety of means. It then turned to future grants from the hospital trust fund, suggesting 
Only by accepting these payments can the original objects of the charter be carried on and the hospital maintained as a Protestant institution. This was confirmation that a reluctance to benefit from the proceeds of gambling was not really rooted in a religiously inspired ethical framework. The hospital's Protestant credentials were not to be injured by the acceptance of this morally dubious money, but rather protected by it. It was not within a code of ethics that the Adelaide's Protestantism was manifested, but elsewhere. This revealing statement never made it into the public record, and a sanitised version appeared in the press that was unforthcoming about past relations with the hospital trust fund. It simply presented the choice as a stark one between closing the hospital or joining the sweep. However, the Adelaide Hospital arrived very late to this particular gold rush. During the late 1950s and throughout the 1960s, the hospital trust fund was drying up as a source of revenue. The state was having to subvent the fund, and, this, and with this increasing financial responsibility came increasing state control. Under this new dispensation, the future of hospital care was inclined towards amalgamation. It was deemed that economies of scale would control costs and allow for diversified expertise to develop simultaneously. And if you'll allow a Star Trek reference, the Department of Health would hang in the sky like a Borg cube, declaring to small hospitals that they would be assimilated and that resistance was futile. <laughs> a group of young doctors, cognizant of this new reality and drawn from a range of Dublin's small voluntary hospitals, began a series of meetings in 1957 to, to discuss the benefits for research and medical education of increased cooperation. These meetings brought together doctors from the Adelaide, the Meath, Mercers, the National Children's Hospital, Harcourt Street, the Royal City of Dublin, Bagot Street, Sir Patrick Dunn's and Dr Stevens Hospitals, which would collectively become known as the Feds, owing to a halfway house federation agreement they reached with the ultimate goal of, amalg of amalgamation sketched out in nebulous terms. From an early stage in this process, it was identified that the Adelaide had, quote, special problems. The Department of Health outlined for the government the potential landmines in the scheme, explaining that some difficulties arose during the negotiations regarding the safeguarding of the, of the denominational character of the Adelaide Hospital and the constitution of the General Council, the, 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 sorry, the Central Council, which is the oversight body for this new federation. The extent of the problems surrounding the safeguarding of the denominational character of, of the Adelaide Hospital can be ascertained from the minutes of its managing committee from the same period. The managing committee discussed amalgamation and minuted how, this is quoting, in the mind of the founders, the primary function of the Adelaide Hospital was to serve the needs of the Protestant community. And this intention is reflected in its charter. The hospital cannot therefore be classified as non-sectarian and it could only take part in a scheme of merger involving a central system of appointments and administration if it first surrendered its charter and became reconstituted. Such a process is not within the competence of the Board of Management and would depend upon the will of a large body of persons known collectively as the Society. This is the Adelaide Society which governs the hospital. The Adelaide was successful in its appeal for special treatment and section 12 subsection 2F of the resulting hospitals Federation and Amalgamation Act, provided, that's 1961, provided that no appointment to a hospital which is of a particular denominational character shall be made, um, which is not in accord with that character except with the approval of the board of the hospital concerned, while, section, while clause J of the same subsection provided similar guarantees for nurse training. 
In the Department of Health memorandum for the government, both of these sections carried notes stating that they were designed, quote, especially for the Adelaide Hospital, the charter of which makes it Protestant in denomination. However, the charter also guaranteed the democratic management of the hospital vested in the Adelaide Society, all those governors and members we met earlier. The same piece of legislation proposed to do away with elections to the boards of, of constituent hospitals. Instead, they were to be filled by co-option in the future, assumedly to insulate them from a democratic counter-revolution to the scheme of amalgamation. This attack on the principles of the Adelaide's charter did not raise a murmur. The democratic practices enshrined in the charter, however qualified by financial hurdles and denominational restrictions, were simply not important. Revealingly, what was important was outlined in a briefing document. The Board of Management, it explained, have given long and earnest consideration to the question of federation and have been guided by the following three paramount considerations. One, to afford the best possible treatment and conditions for patients. Two, to retain as far as possible the original intention of the Charter, i.e. to maintain the Adelaide Hospital as a Protestant hospital in Dublin for the Protestant community and three, to provide medical and surgical training for Protestant students and nurses. These last two priorities were meaningful. In the initial stages of negotiating on the subject of amalgamation, when it seemed that relinquishing the denominational safeguards of the Charter would be required, the Managing Committee had commented that such a process is not within the competence of the Board of Management. However, once safeguards had been secured on the denominational restrictions, there had been no hesitance in unpicking the democratic components of the Charter. This was every bit as far outside of the competence of the Managing Committee and the Board of Management as rescinding the denominational restrictions would have been. The only variable was willingness. When the Adelaide Society was summoned to approve the necessary changes to the Charter to make way for the Hospitals Federation, the Hospitals Federation and Amalgamation Act, members were given a briefing document to assure them of its benefits. Amongst the assurances listed, two related to the religious filters the hospital employed. The rights of present members of the visiting staff are protected, it said, and new staff appointed for their work in the Adelaide would have to be of the Protestant denomination, unless the board agreed otherwise. And the autonomy of the Adelaide School of Nursing as a school for Protestant nurses is to be protected. On 22nd of March 1960, an extraordinary general meeting of the Adelaide Society voted to enter into the Federation. The, piece, the pace of state-led amalgamation upped its tempo in the late 1960s and early 1970s. During this period, in 1968, the Fitzgerald Report was published. This report became the major policy document in, determin in determining subsequent developments in hospital reorganisation in Ireland. This report concluded that Irish hospitals were too many, too small and too independent of each other, and it recommended a considerable reduction in the number of centres providing acute treatment. For Dublin, the report recommended four hospitals, two regional, two general, split between the north and south sides of the city. The Matter Hospital would form the nucleus of the regional hospital on the north side, incorporating Jervis Street and North St Lawrence's hospitals, while the regional hospital on the south side would be St Vincent's Hospital, and it was proposed that it would absorb the federated hospitals. Crucially, this would leave Dublin's two regional and teaching hospitals under Catholic control. The general hospitals would be based on the sites of the Connolly Memorial Hospital on the north side and St Kevin's Hospital on the south side. These suggestions had a freezing effect on the Adelaide's attitude to amalgamation. What had been an awkward compromise with the largely Protestant federated hospitals was unthinkable with the fully Catholic St Vincent's Hospital, and St Vincent's was not at all enthusiastic about the prospect either. 
In November 1968, the Federation leaned on the Adelaide, this time pushing for it to choose between amalgamation of, at St Vincent's or at St Kevin's near the city centre. While it seemed ever clearer that plans would proceed with or without the Adelaide's cooperation and that its bargaining power was quickly evaporating, the managing committee would not be rushed. The Fitzgerald Report found expression in the Health Act of 1970, though the rather technically minded conclusions of the report had been thoroughly re-engineered in the political cut and thrust of getting local authorities, doctors and hospital management on board. While the Health Act of 1970 was conciliatory in many directions, it threatened one group in particular, lay management of hospitals. As lay management was an essential ingredient of the Adelaide's Charter, what did the management of the hospital make of the new legislation? Although the threat to lay management was explicitly acknowledged in the Adelaide's internal discussions, to the point that it was feared the proposed changes would almost completely remove the need for boards of management, it formed only one of three concerns discussed by the hospital's management about the reforms envisaged. The Board of Management of the Adelaide listed its concerns as one, what would happen to the Hospitals Federation and Amalgam Amalgamation Act 1961, two, how would denominational hospitals, i.e. the Adelaide, react to a centralised system of appointing consultants and senior medical staff, and three, the fact that the proposed representation of lay boards of hospitals was grossly inadequate at all levels. While assurances were sought on the first and second concern, the third concern was discarded. The Adelaide's point man on the Health Act 1970, T.K. Weir, reported to the hospital's board of management that he could see no reason for maintaining lay governors once the changes become law, nor could he see how the denominational character of a hospital could be maintained, when all senior medical and surgical appointments would be made by the regional board. It was not felt that he should make any representation on the matter of governors, but that we should act on the denominational aspect of consultant appointments. The democratic components of the Adelaide's Charter were to be surrendered for the fundamental principle of its Protestant status again. If this status manifested itself in the medical ethics of the hospital, no trace remains in the records I could find. As I said, it did begin to feature later, but I can't find it in the 50s, 60s or 70s. Rather, the Protestant status of the Adelaide Hospital was a filter in its recruitment. Training and admissions policies that discriminated against non-Protestants, and it was this primal objective that was to be protected above all others. It was, in short, a tribal rather than a doctrinal approach to medicine. This was the only condition affixed by the Board of Management to the Adelaide's negotiations regarding the Health Act of 1970. It feared losing its right, which had been provided in the earlier Hospitals Federation and Amalgamation Act, to veto appointments and it was felt that representations and the denominational aspects of the Minister's proposals should be made direct to the Minister, keeping the Chairman of the Federation informed. While the Adelaide offered to soften some of its restrictions, these did not go far enough for the Department of Health. The Minister Erskine Childers, incidentally a member of the Adelaide Society, attempted to broker a compromise, but ultimately the Adelaide determined to hold on to its religiously restrictive practices. And when the Feds ultimately did amalgamate at St James's Hospital, as events turned out, the Adelaide Hospital remained outside these arrangements, taking events several years beyond the period we're looking at today. The Meath Hospital also stayed out of this, and the Children's Hospital. So what can we learn from any of this? I think there are three distinct lessons, and one big question. The first lesson, to the extent that we can identify a definitive culture of Protestant healthcare in Ireland, it appears this was not an ethical or moral approach to certain medical practices. It was, as I said, the tribal rather than doctrinal approach to medicine.
Protestants were to be favoured in admissions, recruitment and management, in ascending order of importance. There was a certain parallel to this approach as in education. The Church of Ireland sought the cloistered provision of services for its members and Protestants generally. When the resources of its own community could no longer afford these services, it attempted to convince the state to subsidise them, while resisting any effort by the state to lower denominational barriers. In the Adelaide's case, it was an attempt to maintain a Protestant hospital for a Protestant people. This did not exclude the possibility that a Protestant formation of medical ethics existed in the Adelaide. But if it did, the managing bodies of the hospital did not mention it in their minutes or include it in their appeals for special treatment. It was resistant to state interference, appeared uninterested in a particular formu formulation of medical ethics, and was overtly discriminatory in its primary objective. The second lesson involves the historiographical dimension. Much has been written of Irish Catholic medical circles in the 20th century, which is highly critical of signs and traces of sectarianism within those circles. Archbishop McQuaid's hostility to medical education in Trinity College Dublin, or the Meath Hospital Putsch, where a rogue band of the Knights of Columbanus defenestrated the Protestant management of that hospital rather unceremoniously at the annual general meeting, are two instances that immediately spring to mind. However, much of what has been written about these instances ignores the question, did they have a point? Was it acceptable that Catholics should present themselves for education or training in environments where a solid glass ceiling would be in place over them? There are additional nuances at play, of course, in all of this, but I think this particular nuance requires a bit more attention. The third lesson involves another and wider historiographical point. There is an ever-expanding literature on 20th century Ireland in which Ireland is presented as a cult house for Protestants. However, the evidentiary examples generally offered in support of this thesis, the Mayo Librarian case, the Tilson case, Fetterton C, stand out more for their exceptionality rather than their typicality. And what has been ignored is that in those sectors of Irish life where the Protestant churches were left undisturbed to set the rules as they saw fit, there was a much more consistent culture of discrimination in place than existed in the state generally. And finally, this is my question, I don't have the answer to this, and I'd be very interested in anyone's thoughts on this. How does all of this fit into the European context? This practice of denominational pillarisation with parallel realities and services for different communities does perhaps have comparisons with countries like Belgium or the Netherlands where different state-supported funds and hospitals catered to different ethnic groups. Was this religiously delineated world of Irish healthcare an, an anachronism, or was it in keeping with a small European country feeling its way through the 20th century? Much will depend on how comparable or distinct the Irish example is when compared to these other examples, a task I have yet to begin in earnest. Thank you very much.